I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two different friends, Amy's like a golden retriever, and I'm the grumpy cat of this outfit, talk about all the amazing advantages that come from living a bookish life. Each week we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author, awesome, a bookseller, bingo, a member of a book club, marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are. In this last episode of season six, we feature a writer who we had the pleasure of meeting in real life at Carmichael's bookstore during a leg of her book tour. Courtney Mom is a celebrated author of literary fiction, but her latest book is a memoir about how a return to horse riding in her late 30s helped her rediscover herself. It isn't uncommon at all for women to lose themselves in their roles as mothers or wives or employees and forget what it is that brings them joy and passion and a sense of fun. Courtney's book, The Year of the Horses, follows her through personal losses, professional challenges, and her ultimate decision to saddle up and not only ride again, but take on a new equine endeavor, polo. But first, Carrie, I saw in the news that one of your favorite authors of all time, Jesmyn Ward, who you are a fangirl of, just won a big award. I saw that too. I did see that. Yeah. She won the Library of Congress Prize for American Fiction. Yeah. She's the youngest person to receive that award for her lifetime of work. So Wow. That's very cool. I had to mention that. I still have to read one of her books. For somebody who's new to Jesmyn Ward, what book do you think would be a good starter book? Oh, I would say Sing Unburied Sing. Is, I mean, just like mind blowing. Okay. That one's really, really good. But have I read everything she's written? I've read three. Yeah. I've read three of her six. Sing Unburied Sing is really, really good. Okay. But she has a new nonfiction. It's called Navigate Your Stars. I think I have a copy of Sing Unburied Sing. So I'll have to pull it out somewhere that I see it. You know, I have a lot of books on my shelves. And of course, I have plans to read all of them. But sometimes it helps to put it somewhere where I will. Right in front of your eyeballs. Right in front of my eyeballs. So, Carrie, this is our last episode of season six. Yep. And as soon as, as soon as we record this, we are out of here. <laughs> we, are, we are summering. We are summering for a month. We'll so be back in August. If you're not caught up on episodes, catch up. Mom. I'm talking to you, and uh, <laughs> and if you're caught up, then we'll be posting some of our past episodes, and we'll be renewed and refreshed, and, and maybe I'll be in a better mood for season seven. I don't know. Stranger things have happened, so we'll see. We hope that all of you have fantastic summers, and we will see you back in season seven, and until then, let's talk to Courtney. Courtney, mom, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Well, thank you so much for having me. So Courtney, we had the pleasure of meeting you at our local independent bookstore, Carmichael's Books, when you came to do an author event there. And it was thrilling to hear you talk about your book. And this is your first memoir. You're no stranger to writing. You've had five books plus a chat book to be published. So before we delve into the year of the horses, tell us a little bit about how your writing career began. Sure. So I think I owe a great deal to my teachers. From the age that I started to be able to write and read, around seven years old, I'd say, that's really all I wanted to do. I 
plagiarized a lot of Shel Silverstein. <laughs> I found these poems I was writing recently, and they're they're all just reiterations of Shel Silverstein. I went to a really good school, an all girls school, and found teachers right away who really nurtured my passion and later my talent and encouraged me. Especially one teacher in particular, Mr. Jeffrey Schwartz. Shout out to Mr. Schwartz who. In eighth grade, I remember he pulled me aside. I'd, I'd written some assignment that he thought we could submit to a contest. And you know, I didn't know that there were contests for writing. And, you know, onward and upward. So by the time I was in high school, I was the editor of a pretty serious literary magazine we had in, in high school and was submitting to contests and newspapers and things like that. And, you know, already taking myself pretty seriously as a writer and then I sort of DIY'd it, you know, I, I went to college, but I majored in um, comparative literature and French to English translation. I didn't study English. I didn't take creative writing workshops. I don't have an MFA. I lived most of my 20s abroad in, in Paris, working a whole range of weird jobs and, you know, basically just sort of lives, which is important <laughs> if you want to be a writer, especially, you know, a fiction writer. And then, yeah, I mean, I really kind of did it the old-fashioned way when, when I thought I had a project that could perhaps get me agent representation. I was still living in Paris. I did not have a single writing friend, you know, nothing. I didn't have a mentor. So I just basically looked in, like, the yellow pages of ancient. <laughs> and, you know, from there, it's all about relationship building, really. The hustle, the hustle that I was doing as a 22-year-old is, unfortunately... Not very different from what I'm doing as a 43-year-old, <laughs> yes. What kind of things did you like to read besides Shel Silverstein? Oh. <laughs> and I have to put in a little plug because I was just at the post office the other day and they have a Shel Silverstein stamp. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't a know little that. picture of the giving tree on it. Oh, so, you know, just a, a little sad. FYI. <laughs> <laughs> when I was younger, I mean, partly because of the what we were being assigned in English, but like I really, I loved all the classics, you know, Anne of Green Gables, Bridge to Terabithia. These were books I really loved. The Babysitter's Club. <laughs> and then I think even by high school, I got pretty obsessed with French literature and French writers. I mean, I was reading it in English, but I remember thinking Balzac was like king of, of short stories. Your newest book is nonfiction. <laughs> yeah. It's a memoir, Year of the Horses. So what kind of challenges did that present to you writing in a different mm. form? Well, I mean, I have to say to me, once I really finally settled on the right tone and structure for my memoir, it didn't feel that different to me from building a novel. You still needed to find the momentum. You still needed to understand why a reader who doesn't know you would turn the page which in memoir really means like okay understanding what do I think is interesting about myself versus what will a total stranger find interesting and accessible you know trying to meet the reader halfway and not track them with your sort of peacocking, but but attract them through <laughs> compassion and like a universal experience. I don't think that that's that different from fiction because ultimately you're sort of doing the same things. There's something pushing you to the page with novel writing. There's always an itch you want to scratch, right? I'm not saying all fiction's autobiographical, but there's generally something you find interesting or enraging about the world and you kind of want to convince 
or seduce other people into feeling a, a similar emotion, right? But you have to do it in a way that caters more to the reader than people think, you know? And so um, the whole building out of the memoir itself, I really didn't find that different from fiction writing, but what was entirely different was the the aftermath, the kind of pre-publication period where you're all of a sudden you realize, wow, the characters in my book are real. They're real people and most of them are alive and maybe they're not going to be so thrilled to be in this book. So <laughs> all that stuff, the kind of nine months before publication of do I change a name? Do I not change a name? Do I let this person know they're in the book? Do I let them read it if they have something negative or positive to say? Do I hear it? How am I positioning myself in terms of being the author of this book? Like those more professional marketing and etiquette questions were definitely not something I, I had to deal with in fiction before. Your book, Year of the Horses, is about horses, but it also covers a lot of ground from marital dysfunction to the stresses of motherhood to baggage from your childhood. So how did you kind of weave those threads together? And were there things that you originally had in the book that you focused on and then had to to cut back on to give you know room for other areas to flourish. Yeah, I mean that's a it's an interesting question. Oddly enough, the um, first draft, maybe the first and second draft of this, had very little of my childhood, which will seem crazy because if if anyone reads the book, like, <laughs> the most of it is you know about my childhood now, but. Starting out, I just had a lot of trepidation about write, writing about my childhood, especially in today's cultural moment. I come from a privileged background. I grew up in you know, very wealthy Greenwich, Connecticut in the 1980s with a dad on Wall Street and my own pony and, you know, was definitely feeling like, well, what right do I have to talk about sadness and darkness in my life? You know, I've had a really lucky life. I was set up for success. So I would say that the stuff I was working through in the beginning was finding that universal through line that gave me the courage to say, okay, even though you might've come from this very lucky place, you're still entitled the sadness and the fear and emotional neglect and, and things that I write about. And, and you have the right to examine how these things affect you as a, an adult and a an artist and a mom and a a wife. And that's when I started doing, you know, I really do think of it as like a dosi do, like moving toward the reader. Who who else out there would be feeling like this? And the answer to me was I think most women mm -hmm. in their 40s and 50s and 60s can a hundred percent relate with the feeling of I can't find joy outside of my established identities. You know, by 40 which is the age I am in the book, you either have a career or maybe you're a homemaker, you know, perhaps you're married or you've established, you know, some sort of status in the romantic area. You've probably leaned already one way or another towards what you're doing in terms of reproduction. And I just think as women, we're very much socialized to find joy through these domestic roles and what was happening to me was I, I just wasn't being nourished by them enough. You know, I needed something entirely for myself, which was usually my writing. But the writing at that point wasn't going well. And also the writing had become monetized. I was the breadwinner in my household. And 
all of our income dependent on what happened with my books. And it just collapsed from the pressure. And so that it was like that realm, I just knew there's so many women out there. It doesn't really matter where they came from, what, what race they are. But I know that women in America can relate to feeling overtapped, undervalued, not seen, not celebrated, and just not having enough joy and play and silliness in their lives. So like, I don't actually, I, I don't describe my memoir as being a book about horses, because the horses come in later, like in the latter third of the book, because it takes me a long time to reclaim that childhood passion I had of horseback riding, because it just seems so indulgent. You know, like, again, socialized, like free time that I have, I should be spending with my young daughter, and you know, teaching her how to, I have no idea, touch type or whatever, <laughs> not spending lots of money I don't really have to trot around a ring. You know, I tell people like this could very well be a book about joining a, a roller derby league or learning synchronized swimming. You know, for me, it was horses, but people don't need to like horses to come to this book because it really could be anything. I tried to write it in a way where totally open arms to people who not only don't know anything about horses, but don't like them or fear mm -hmm. them. The horses is a placeholder for joy, you mm -hmm. know. Well, it's interesting, you know, because Kentucky, you know, yeah. I, I have lived in Kentucky my whole life and, and Kentucky is, is horse country, you know, yeah. and so I'm a freelance writer and I've recently written several assignments that are about horses. And even though, you know, I've been on a horse, but it's usually like a trail ride, you know, where I'm just having to, to keep the horse behind the other horse. And so writing these articles really piqued my interest and your book furthered that. So, you know, even though, as you said, the book could be, you know, really about anything that sparks a woman's interest and joy and, and enthusiasm. What do you think it is about horses sort of in general, because, you know, that's sort of your animal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think it is about horses that people find compelling? Well, I mean, there's so much to love about horses. I, I think that they're really majestic creatures. Most people agree that they're very beautiful, you know, to look at. And they have sort of these old souls and seem to be wiser than, than we are. But, you know, those are aesthetic considerations. I think what tends to really move people when they start to work with horses, either on the ground or, or mounted, is that they are perfectly honest mirrors of ourselves. So if you come to the barn and you've had a really rough day, rough week, whatever it is, and you're distracted and in your head and kind of can't be present, the horses, not even the one you've come to ride, but just all the horses that you kind of pass in the aisle of the barn, you know, they'll respond to that. They might pin their ears back or start to weave, which is this kind of nervous habit where their head bobs or they might kind of dance around in their stall or move to the furthest corner to get away from you. Or, or of course, the other side of the coin, you're feeling really good. You're feeling super present, just very much in the moment. You know, these horses might actually stop eating and come up to you because you're carrying this charismatic, wonderful energy that just draws them in and they want a part of that, whereas they don't want a part of, of the stress and negativity. And what was very healing for me about that was that you know, I was at a time in my life going through a really debilitating depression and a lot of people were just not 
calling me out on it, which I, I'm not resentful about that. It's very hard to understand how to say to someone, hey, it seems like you're struggling. You know, do you want to talk? That actually takes a lot of bravery. But, you know, I was certainly in a lot of situations where clearly things were really, really off with me. And no one kind of paused and said, like, oh, you OK? You know, instead it was, oh, I, I love this pasta recipe. You have to give it to me. Or, oh, my gosh, your dress <laughs> is so great. I love those boots. You know, just superficial stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's very American. You know, my husband is French. And during this time when we would go back to France, I just physically looked like I was struggling. I'd lost tons of weight. My face was really gaunt. I was like riddled with canker sores. I had all these physical problems. And my mother-in-law, like right off the plane, was like, what the hell is wrong with you? You look awful. You're so skinny. You know, and um, pretty much everyone I encountered, my French friends were just like, Ola, what, what is going on with you? You look like death. And I think it is cultural. You know, we can be a very hypocritical society here in America, but horses, they don't know how to lie. You know, they don't know irony. They don't know sarcasm. They don't know shame. So they just react to you completely honestly, like, oh, gosh, this person's got something scary going on and I want to I want to be away from it. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons that horses and equine therapy people, especially those who are not necessarily finding release through more traditional modalities like talk therapy or perhaps, you know, antidepressants sometimes find that next level of healing through through equine therapy because it's nonverbal. When I started the book, you know, I sort of thought, oh, it'll be about how she had ridden on trails or something like that. But you don't just ride, you learn how to play polo. And, you know, and so I'm not a, a horse person. So it sounded fairly dangerous to me, although I don't know that that's really the correct word. It might be, you know, freeing or adventurous mm-hmm. would be a better word. So what was it about polo that really appealed to you? <laughs> It is dangerous. (laughs) And I'm actually a very fearful person. I'm a really nervous rider. So (laughs) this sport like made no sense. But the way that I started moving toward polo was that I I was just a rider who had returned to riding as an adult and not a very athletic adult. You know, I type. I don't have like a (laughs) fitness regimen. I don't have a gym. I really I don't even do, do yoga. I'm not necessarily like a fit person, you know, but what was happening was I, I was on a budget, like a real budget. So I was doing like group lessons. That's the cheapest way. Well, aside from like working off against your lessons, which was something I was doing. Group lessons are cheaper than private lessons. And I didn't own my own horse. So, you know, I kind of had to take lessons in order to get on an animal. And they had put me in a group with, you know, older women, like in their 60s. And it was just sort of walk, trot and 30 seconds of canter, walk, trot, 30 seconds of canter. And just kind of thought this is lovely but like I kind of need a little bit more and I was investigating like what makes me the happiest when I'm in the ring and I thought well I love being with other people I love the camaraderie I love talking to other people I love being around other people's horses I like riding one-handed I like changing directions I like changing gates and I thought well that's all stuff that they do in polo because I was trying to find my discipline Mm -hmm. you know and I asked the teacher like I don't know but by any chance do you know someone who would teach a complete beginner polo and it happened just so happened she knew like the one guy in Litchfield County this nice gentleman named Mark Gomez the one man right and so I just called him up and 
he gave me a free lesson because he was like, we need more women in polo. And that just launched this, I, I call it like my scene, a man about a horse period. <laughs> you know, I sometimes feel badly that I couldn't offer people a book like Crossing the Line, which is a, a beautiful memoir about a black polo player who came from literally nothing. Like he he grew up in the, a neighborhood called The Bottom in Philadelphia and through participation in a community prevention program called Work to Ride, he ended up, ended up becoming like just an astonishingly talented polo player. And I'm like, oh, I wish I could offer that memoir, you know, where all of a sudden I realized like I'm incredibly great polo player, but you know, it's not that story. I was timid and scared and like knew what I needed to do to be better, but was scared to do it, which was mostly like go fast, you know, let, let the horse do what they want to do. But I kept coming back to it. And ultimately what drew me to polo was that you have to face your fears head on. Like it's a fast game. I played arena polo, so it's three on three. So regardless, you still have five other horses and players with you and the ball's coming at your face and you can't just sit there and be in your head and overanalyze your feelings. Like you must move mm -hmm. and you have to deal with your fears. And in order to protect yourself, you need to kind of just get in your body and deal. And that's what I was struggling with because of my depression was just like spending too much time in my head, not really being in my body, disassociating. So for me, it was this very unlikely medicine. And I mean, I don't think that I could have gotten it from another discipline because it was so social. That's the other thing. I mean, you see these funny scenes. I had this completely motley crew. My, our arena team was there was a 70-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 45-year-old pharmacist, like absolute motley crew. And they needed me to be a team player. It's not the same as going out in the ring and doing a show jumping circuit where you have a trainer who's hoping you'll perform, but you're not on a team. I was on a team. And so, you know, there's a scene in the book where the 12-year-old Lizzie's like, what the hell? Like, move. We need you. Like, snap to it. And so despite my my darker instincts I was like oh gosh well I don't want to let the 12 year old down you know <laughs> and I I made friends through polo new friends you know who didn't know that I was struggling they didn't know I was an author nobody cared you know they're just in the horse world you're really just there for the horses and so those unlikely friendships that I formed I do feel were very specific to polo also it's it's a highly highly social people talk all the time about like once you get a polo handicap you have family everywhere and like I've found that to be true I mean it can be <laughs> obviously like incredibly snobby and elitist but at the amateur level we're all pretty aware that none of us <laughs> make it very far and you're just there for the joy and the fun and the love of, of horses. And it really, it bonds you with these like total strangers. And it just sort of brought me out of my dark depressive shell and reminded me how good people can be and fun and quirky and generous and that we're all going through stuff, you know? 
because you've written fiction and you've written some poetry. And this is unlike that and that you are burying your soul. <laughs> you know, you're burying your private life, your marital dysfunction, um, ambivalent feelings that you have about motherhood, some, you know, traumatic memories of childhood. And, you know, your mother's, I'm not sure about your father, your mother's still alive. <laughs> so was, was that hard to do? I mean, it felt really good during the writing because to me... I know that I'm getting somewhere when I excavate toward the truth, you know, like it, nothing feels worse to me on the page than being disingenuous. And I really don't enjoy reading memoirs where the memoirist is trying to paint themselves a, a, a certain way or do a PR spin and mm -hmm. either make themselves look like the only victim in the story or like some kind of shining hero, because it's just not the way that the world works. You know, things are very complicated and nuanced. And I think that, memoir should reflect that nuance it usually takes two to tango right or more than two people but the you know the good guy bad guy thing it's rarely that that black and white so when I was writing it it always felt really good like I'd feel an actual dopamine release when I would write a true sentence a true reveal something where I was risking something that made me feel like I was getting closer to the heart of the story. But then, you know, the pre-publication period that I alluded to having to share this with people. And yeah, my dad is alive. Of course, my husband, I had to show it with him. Like that was not comfortable for anyone. <laughs> Certainly, I imagine it had to be less comfortable for the people in the book. So that was deeply uncomfortable. And, um, you know, had a lot of discussions, especially with my husband about modifications, his feeling that his side of the story wasn't reflected and I, I wasn't legally obligated to show this to, to people in it because there's not a strong case for defamation of, of character. But I'm glad that I did decide to show it to people because I think it made a better book because what I ended up doing was wrestling. Like there's this scene about a really pivotal car accident we had and he, in the, the first drafts, he was like, you can't publish it like this. Like This was not my experience. It's not how I experienced that accident at all and you cannot publish it like that and I was really upset because I'd really written my truth I'd written exactly how I had experienced that accident but he'd really put his foot down you can't publish it like this so so I wrestled with that for a long time and then ultimately thought oh well I, I'll just put both of our perspectives mm -hmm. and then the the reader can decide or not decide and then, so I ended up doing that a lot like when I talked to my mom about the book and the things she remembered or remembered differently, I realized that I'd gotten some things wrong as a child. Like I'd made assumptions that weren't true. So that was something else I sat with like, well, but they were true to me, you know, as a 10 year old. So I don't, I don't want to go back and rewrite history. So I did the same thing. You, you'll see scenes when I'm a child and I tell the truth. That was a truth to me. Like there's this scene about my mom's, motorcycle that she got after my parents got divorced and I have things to say about about it as a child and I'm convinced I know why that motorcycle came into her life and then later you'll see me as an adult actually kind of talking with my mom on the phone and realizing that everything I'd assumed about how the motorcycle came into her life I, I actually had wrong and so I just left it there and I did that a lot with the seesawing between the childhood and the adulthood because you find out secrets as you grow older your parents tell you things you know maybe you find out that they weren't always monogamous or 
you know, that you had no idea that your dad loved pickleball. I, I don't know what, but you right, you find you find these things out. And to me, that's really charming um, or it can be scary. But, you know, that's sort of what life is like as an adult, your knowledge of the past starts to erode the pristine innocence of childhood. That's something that can happen with memory. Maybe someone passes away and you find letters that testify to the fact that someone in your family was actually gay, right? Or, or had some passion you knew nothing about. But to me, that was not an argument for completely changing what I had thought and believed as a child. I, I, that's something I like about the book is that I really try to keep that kind of magic fantasy land of childhood intact because uh, it was very intact for me. It was very whole. I had very fond memories of my my childhood you know I I did like that about your book and I think that you know the older you get you know the more you realize what you don't know mm-hmm. and I, I know for myself I have to remind myself sometimes that my reality is only my mm-hmm. reality mm-hmm. that it's not the reality and so I felt like your book was kind of a good reminder to the reader that what you think you know might not be what you actually know. Yeah. Um, and, and I think totally. that's something that probably most of us need more regular reminders of. Oh, definitely. So. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> it might be a coincidence, but Carrie and I feel like uh, have been reading a lot of books lately, either for book clubs or for the podcast. Fiction and nonfiction both are about women in middle age mm. who are going through like a transition where yeah. they need to rediscover who they are. And you have this line in your book that I just thought was so powerful where you said, we need passions that are ours and ours alone so that we can be ourselves instead of somebody else's something, mother, ex-wife, wife. When you were taking up polo or taking up writing, did you think that that's what you were doing, rediscovering yourself? Or were you, was it sort of a instinctual thing (laughs) yeah no I don't know I didn't know what I was doing certainly my husband was like what are you doing because (laughs) it's an expensive sport and you're on this budget and it's dangerous and like you keep falling off you know and so you know I didn't write the book until a couple years after I'd started playing polo but yeah I think the writing of the book was my attempt to understand why I was doing this thing so I guess it was instinctual I felt called to it I couldn't really understand why and it was doing me good it was doing me a lot of good it was really helping me get on the other side of my depression you know 100% so I kept doing it and my husband could see that I mean he never said to me you know he'd make fun a little bit but he was very supportive you know and came to not so much watch my polo games because in the beginning there was not much to watch you know (laughs) Um, but we would go to polo clubs in this in this region and watch you know high goal polo and he thinks it's an incredible sport you know he enjoys watching it I knew I was on some kind of quest but I didn't understand why I didn't know what the end game was I just knew that I had to kind of keep journeying. (laughs) There was a book that I read several years ago, and there were parts of your book that reminded me of it. It, It's a book called It's Great to Suck at Something, The Exceptional Benefits of Being Unexceptional by Karen Rinaldi. And in this book, she talks about all the benefits of doing something you love, even if you aren't good at it. In her case, it was surfing. Yours was much a much more social activity, but I'm a Virgo like you are, and I really struggle with doing things that I don't excel at. 
I was worse at it as a younger woman. I'm working on it. I feel like I'm better at it now. How has that journey been for you to do something that you don't feel that you're good at? Well, yeah, it's so, it's so freeing actually for me because like you, like I I think of myself as a recovering perfectionist (laughs) and so only orientating myself toward activities where I know I will excel or even like be the best has been a theme in my life that's not necessarily super positive right first first of all it's a bit competitive and it can be a bit egocentric to to organize your life in that manner you miss out on I don't know trying a tango class or you know given baking a paella a shot or I don't know what the heck you know what it is but it's a bit of a cloistered way to live your life and a bit it's an uptight way to live your life and and it's not silly. Again, when I was in Tennessee, this gentleman came up to me afterwards. Turns out he's a pro golfer. And he was talking to me about how he's like, yeah, this sucks. Like, I have no pleasure in golf anymore. I have no pleasure. There's no silliness. There's no joy. And he said, you know, your book talk has inspired me to take up BMX biking again, dirt biking, because I was just okay at that. Like, I was not great. But it was all joy and pleasure because there were no stakes. So it really has encouraged me to just do the things that are silly and goofy and fun with absolutely no stakes and to encourage other people to do that, including my child. There's a talent show on Friday <laughs> and she's doing this skit with her best friend that like makes no sense to me. They're like, they're recreating a scene from the gremlins and it's just like, a gremlin turning into a gremlin and chasing her around the house. And it's like super abstract. And, you know, old me would have like really gotten in there and tried to micromanage and been like, you need more exposition. No one understands what's going on. And, you know, I think I've really grown as a person because I'm like, screw it. No one's really going to, probably people are going to think this is a little out there, but you're having so much fun. Would you go for it? (laughs) You know, and I now find myself just being the cheerleader of, like the least skilled person in every domain. I think that this might be a good place to stop. (laughs) We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Courtney Mom and with Carrie. Carrie, You've been listening to a lot of audiobooks. Are you going to talk about an audiobook or I a am. physical book? No, okay. an audiobook. I am about 70% done with this book. I don't remember where I heard about it, but I was intrigued. The book is called What's So Funny? A Cartoonist Memoir by David Cypress. So David Cypress grew up in New York City in the 1950s and 1960s. Now, he has been a cartoonist for The New Yorker for many years now, but it took him 25 years years of submissions before he actually got published. So I think a lot of times we think about people and we're like, oh, they've been doing this forever, but we don't always know the backstory of how long it took them before they got to where they are. 
So he tells the story of his father, Nat, who owned a jewelry store and sold jewels to some of the most elite in the city and in the country, and his mother, Estelle, who was a homemaker. His father was first-generation American, having immigrated from Ukraine. So it's David's story of growing up, but it's also the story of his family, and they were, like most families, a little bit dysfunctional. His older sister had some fairly intense mental health issues her entire life, and his parents had some anxiety about things. And these affected David and led him to take up therapy and and do that, it sounds like, his whole life to help him work through some things. So one of the anxieties that his father felt was he was Jewish and he tried very, very hard to assimilate after having moved to the United States because in Ukraine he had dealt with pogroms and rampant anti-Semitism. And so that anxiety sort of infiltrated onto David. Another interesting thing thing about David is that he actually worked toward a PhD in Russian history and decided he didn't want to do that. So he left school and he decided to pursue creative endeavors with his life. And his father hated this decision. He went a number of years without communicating with his family at all. But eventually he reconciled with his dad. And so, you know, this is just in general, an interesting story, but it's also a great read for a a parent or a child in terms of what you can learn about the importance of letting your kid, or if you are the kid, just being who you are. And that doesn't always have to or should coincide with whatever dreams your parents have for you. So as as I'm the mom of an 18-year-old who's trying to figure out kind of what she might want to do with her life. It's a good reminder to me that whatever my expectations are, I need to sort of take them and stick them because it's her life. It's it's not my life and it's not my opportunity to relive my life. So I highly recommend the book, What's So Funny? A Cartoonist Memoir by David Cypress. If it took him 25 years of submitting to The New Yorker to finally become one of their cartoonists, mm-hmm. I mean, was he submitting cartoons to other publications or so he had always drawn cartoons like from the time he was a child and he realized that that's sort of the way he deals with things you know so his cartooning is almost like a form of dealing with life and relating to life and so he did other things you know i think a lot of times people who who are creative you know it's not like they just do one thing they might do education programs they might do you know, just editing. I know that he was a cartoonist for a small kind of like alternative magazine for like 30 years. You know, it's like you want to get in the, in the New Yorker, right? So that's this great pie in the sky dream. And and he eventually did it, but it took him 25 years before he was published. And now he's a regular, right? He's been a regular in the New Yorker for years now, but it took him a long time to get to that point. Mm. So. Well, Courtney, what have you been reading? Yeah, my gosh, I I loved that description. It was so selling. And holy moly, I mean, working 25 years for something, 25 years of rejection, most of us would not have that endurance. But then I don't know how to feel about that. Like, you kind of want to think, well, what the hell? Why did the editor say no for that long? Because normally, when you hear in my line of work, right, literature, You'll hear about the J.K. Rowlings or the Stephanie Myers, right, who encountered so so much rejection, but usually it's over maybe two years, Mm -hmm. you know, and then they encounter insane success. I have never actually heard (laughs) of such a long uphill 
journey. So, wow, that really got me. So let's see. The book I'm currently reading, I am only maybe 25% in, so I can't give as long of a summary, but it's called Woman Eating by Claire Coda. And this is a book I read about in the briefly noted section of the New Yorker. I don't know. I read that section all the time and I'm always jotting down like titles to read, but coincided with actually was my, my, my wonderful publisher Tin House had sent me um, a certificate to an independent bookstore on my publication date, which was so sweet of them. And I thought, well, oh, I'm going to use some of the certificate to buy a book. And so I bought Woman Eating by Claire Coda. And it is an amazing first person account of a vampire, like a young woman vampire. I mean, Claire has kind of reinvented some of the vampire rules. Normally, when you're turned, you know, into a vampire, you just halt at that age. She's kind of reinvented things where you halt in your adult form, regardless of when you were turned. And so she's presenting as like a young 20 something year old in Brooklyn, like doing all the things, right? Like getting her first job and her first apartment. And there's all this stuff about her trying to locate pig's blood. Because much like in the Twilight series, this is like a good vampire who's trying not to kill people, right? So I have always been, I don't want to say obsessed, but deeply interested in the interior emotional life of vampires. Like, because... (laughs) Because the idea of living forever is not attractive to me. It sounds really lonely. One of my very, very favorite movies is Interview with Mm -hmm. a Vampire, which I think does an exceptional job of showing these lonely, rage-filled vampires who want, especially the Kirsten Dunst character, who's halted as like a six or seven-year-old and wants you know, she wants romance and like sex and children. She wants all these things that she'll never, never have. And, you know, you have some vampires who truly fall in love with people and they can't actualize on those relationships. And I I find that really moving, you know, and I'm a little jealous of this book. It's hard for me to read because I've flirted for a while with the idea of writing from a vampire point of view. And so too bad for me (laughs) because Claire's done it very, very well. Um, So I'm super into this book and it's very hard to just not blow off the workday to read it. So the book is Woman Eating by Claire Coda. Sold it. Yeah, I know. I've already put it on my TBR on Goodreads. So (laughs) thank you for that. I think even more interesting than the vampire or equally interesting is how society reacts to the vampire. Like Mm -hmm. vampires are demonized, you know, especially among super religious. It's like, Oh, wizards, witches, Mm -hmm. you know, vampires. And as you said, it's not glamorous. If you really think about it, it's very lonely and sad. sad. (laughs) Yeah. So I I'm going to check that out. Amy, what have you been reading? (laughs) Just like not as work related. Yeah, I will say I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks because of that, because the, the physical books I'm reading are of people that we're going to be interviewing or other book obligations I have, like different book clubs. So I end up listening to a lot of audiobooks for the other things that I'm reading. So we recently interviewed the acquisitions editor for West Virginia University Press. It's a university press who's really made some waves recently with books that have gotten lots of, in quote, good press. Um, but the biggest of these is The Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Disha Filia. 
which was a finalist for the National Book Award in 2020. So I decided that it was way past time for me to read this book for myself after we interviewed Sarah Monroe from WVU Press, and it did not disappoint. This is a collection of short stories that are connected in the way that they all feature Black women, and the church is also mentioned in some way. Maybe it's only in passing, but it's mentioned as a foundation of culture that many Black women's lives have been built around. But what many of these stories do is to question the usefulness of that foundation and the happiness of the women in these stories. And when I say it's challenging the usefulness, I'm referring to the church as an institution, not so much God, because those are two totally separate things. And if you're thinking that because the title of this book refers to church ladies, that this will be a very sanitized book, you would be mistaken about that. These stories are about relationships. There's lesbian relationships, adultery, heterosexual relationships. There's the full gamut. Because the truth is that even though the church says that we are all sinners, what they often project is that their members lead virtuous lives. But we all know that that isn't true because behind closed doors or maybe doors that are cracked open just a bit, everyone is human. So the secret lives of the church ladies is just as messy as any other. So I wouldn't recommend listening to this in the car with younger children or maybe even with your mother if she is sensitive like mine to salty language and sex. But the problem sometimes that I have with short story collections is that it can be really uneven. There could be some fantastic stories, but then there are those that fall flat, in which case you know, your experience of the book is somewhere in the middle, but I cannot think of a single story in this collection that I did not enjoy. And her dialogue especially rang true to me. And I just really, really enjoyed it. I listened to the audiobook version of this and it was narrated by Janina Edwards. And it was just a true pleasure. Edwards narration really makes these characters come to life. And it's a fairly short audiobook. It's only about four hours long and is just simply excellent. If you were like me and you have been wanting to add more short story collections into your reading life, I think I made that like a reading goal of mine a couple of years ago. I would highly recommend The Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Disha Filia. Very good. We are going to take another quick break. And when we come back, Courtney's going to answer her three <laughs> in the third degree. We are back with Courtney Mom, and we're going to ask her her questions. Number one, your husband is an award-winning filmmaker, which sounds so glamorous. So <laughs> what was that like winning an award for a film that you screen wrote and he directed? Oh, gosh. Oh, it was like years worth of couples therapy without <laughs> having to pay for it because it's a funny thing. Like I tell people all the time how hard writing is especially when you're trying to do it for money I mean really hard and yet somehow filmmaking <laughs> makes it seem like I'm in some really stable career <laughs> like I think aside maybe from acting there is no worse career like you just spend money to have the opportunity to spend more money you know mm. it's an industry that comes with a lot of perks filmmaking but it's really hard to actually bring in any money and so his first film that we we worked on together Bob and the trees <laughs> I almost didn't get a writing credit because I started out helping him write it and then we have such different creative processes that I kind of quit <laughs> like <laughs> I couldn't handle it he's he's very 
meditative and slow thinker and really lets things percolate. And I'll sit down and write an entire book just to save one line. Like I have, I have like a verbal diarrhea thing. I just got to get to the project, write out the scene and then analyze it. I don't want to think too much. So I dropped out of the project and then he hired someone else and I got jealous. <laughs> so I jumped back on, which is why there's a third person at the, the screenwriting credit. But that, I think it was five or six years of just like really not knowing if this thing was ever going to happen. And it was <laughs> made us a single income household. And um, I, I mean, I'm writing about that period of time in my, my own memoir, The Year of the Horses. So when... Um, it debuted at Sundance, which is already like a huge accomplishment. But the big award, there's this huge, huge festival called Karlovy Vary abroad in European films. It, it circles is like absolutely major. And he won the, the top, top prize there called the, the Crystal Globe. And, you know, it was Black Tie, Harvey Keitel, I think, gave him, the, it was, you know, all these stars. It's, it's second in line to like the Cannes Film Festival. It's a very big deal. Holy moly. I mean, we were flown over there with the whole crew and had been you know, driven around in these BMW. BMW was a sponsor. We had our own driving. It was, it was like such a reverse from the last five years that we've been living hand to mouth, like living on bulk Costco sausages day in day out (laughs) and you know and it really proved to me because I I think I had reached a point I was just tapped out of like I don't think I can believe anymore I don't know that this is going to happen you know and we both really needed that boost of other people believing you know and it helped me you know with his second project his second feature it just came out recently but that was another four or five years to make it was just awesome because now I can actually look at that trophy on the piano and think his creative process is much slower than mine you know and we don't see the fruits as as quickly but like they're coming you know mm-hmm. believe and sure enough his second film which actually is about the time that we're speaking it's about two weeks out it's called down with the king and it'll be streaming in the end of june so look for it it's an amazing movie and it's the acting debut of the real life rapper freddie gibbs it's just an incredible film which i did not write i did like pr for it but um (laughs) he he's replaced me with someone who's easier to work with (laughs) (laughs) so you said it'll be streaming what service will it be streaming on i think netflix and then probably for purchase on amazon okay Um, but yeah down with the king by diego ungaro o-n-g-a-r-o cool well, question number two. Apparently, you love a good county fair. <laughs> what did you love about them as a child, and what do you appreciate about them now? And is it the same thing? I don't think I went to county fairs as a child. Oh, okay. I don't have any recollections of that. And those kind of fairs that have the rides and stuff, I, I just don't think we had that in Greenwich, Connecticut. I think my first fair, and this was a pretty big one to start with, I was already in my 20s, probably late 20s. And a friend of mine was getting married in Bozeman, Montana, where she lives. And I'd never been. And me and my husband went and we made a two-week journey out of it. And we happened to be in Livingston, Montana for the 4th of July. And I will never in my life forget. I mean, I don't think you can call that a county fair. It's big deal. It's one of the best like rodeos out there. But massive. Well, actually, the arena itself wasn't that massive, but it's in this valley which is surrounded by these mountains. And they started to play the Star Spangled Banner. There were live singers. And then down these mountains from like far away, these 
women riders start barreling down the mountain toward oh, wow. us with these massive these were not rinking dinky american flags these were on like steel pole they were like the big ones that they fly at car salesmanship you know <laughs> and I just like burst into tears. These women were such incredible riders. And, you know, it went on and it was just like the best rodeo riders in the country. And there were strangers passing me hunks of watermelon. And I'm like, this is America. We'd we'd recently moved back from France where my husband was born and raised and I'd lived for like six years. So after that, I was totally hooked. And at that point, we were in Brooklyn thinking we would make a life there, which only lasted a year and a half. We hated it. And so I, from 2007 on, I've lived in rural areas, first the Berkshire Mountains in Massachusetts and, and now northwestern Connecticut. And we have lots of county fairs, tons and tons and tons. So ever since then, you know, the minute I see a little poster on some bulletin board, like I'm dragging my family to the <laughs> county fair. And at this point now I have friends who are in the rodeos. You know, my, one of my daughter's babysitter is a really good barrel racer. So... I'm all about, I really want to get up the nerves, try barrel racing or, or sit on a Bronco or, you know, something. But <laughs> I don't think I'll do it. But I just think it's a very whole, to me, that's a really essential American experience. The best of America is still on view. And I also love the farrier competitions where they have to, you know, compete to forge a horseshoe quickly. I just think that's an incredible line of work. And, you know, you get to see a celebration of trades that you don't usually see. So yeah, I love county fairs. A couple things about that. The first thing you were talking about a farrier and a couple months ago, I got a little obsessed on my Instagram and Facebook feeds. Videos of farriers like mm-hmm. horseshoeing a horse would pop up. And I found it very like calming and zen yep. to watch them. Oh, totally. Do the horseshoes. It was crazy. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is, you're right. Your first experience with a county fair does not sound normal. I was envisioning corn dogs, cotton no. candy, and then and then throwing up after you'd ridden the scrambler. Yeah, no. It was, it was pretty a high, high bar. High bar. <laughs> All right, your last question. So you host a writing conversation series at Edith Wharton's The Mount. So tell us about the building and what it's like talking about writing there. So I would love to tell you about the building, except that the conversation series is actually virtual. The pivot that the good people at the Mount created during the pandemic, they, you know, were trying to start to do virtual events. And then it was happening during a time where it seemed like it would be safe to gather, but they'd started noticing that we brought in larger audiences by doing it virtually. And we, we were also able to attract a caliber of artists that they normally probably couldn't afford. Like I spoke to people who lived in England and Spain. I did lots and lots of conversations with people abroad who it's no big deal for them. They're more than happy to spend an hour talking to us. But, you know, the idea of leaving their jobs and families, to it's too much, right? So it was virtual. And I think if we haven't decided whether we'll keep running it because we just did the last one. Well, actually, I'm the last one. They're good. We're doing an in-person event at the end of the month. But I, I imagine that we'll continue doing it virtually because we're just able to bring in people can watch it after the fact. It's so much more accessible. It's free, whereas their in-person events are not free. You have to buy a ticket to the ground. So I mean, I've, of course, been there and the grounds and the gardens are absolutely beautiful. But they, you know, they've done this wonderful job with just really kind of thinking far in the future. What would 
Edith Wharton have wanted. And it's become a quite a modern place. Like they have this spooky thing right now with there's like taxidermy in the forest and they've done modern sculpture exhibits and they have all kinds of speakers come. And I think that they have created a legacy for Edith Wharton that's really open and beautiful and accepting. And, you know, we, we interview people from all walks of life and it's definitely been to me, it's just nice to have the hybrid choice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's really nice and it really does allow us to kind of transcend time differences and economic differences and physical disabilities. I mean, I do these events like all the time and accessibility, both of the financial and physical sort you know it's not great like a lot of the writing conferences I go to if if you're definitely in a wheelchair but even if you have a walker it's going to be a real problem it's not going to be a comfortable experience for you or you just cost a lot of money you have to get a hotel so yeah I'm all about these conversation series and even the virtual festivals that you know it can feel a bit odd but you just believe in it and make it work and and um yeah it's great so it's it's been wonderful i talked every month was a different theme we tried to do it around short story month or women's history or black history and then invited a writer you know who represented the the theme and but we i spoke to directors and screenwriters and poets and activists and um, graphic memoir writers all kinds which was really nice because originally they thought oh well Edith just did fiction so we'll only have fiction writers and I pushed back and they were like okay cool you know great to work with but where is the mount located Lenox Massachusetts okay which is the Berkshires so like this area of the southern Berkshires Edith Wharton Henry Miller like there was a little group of friends <laughs> that used to go sledding and everything and, and, and there were a lot of writers in the area because of the mount you know because Edith had this grand estate yeah so it's um I think it's open year round and you can you can look up what they've got going on this well Courtney it has been so fantastic chatting with you about your book and all of your projects your horse riding <laughs> your polo playing thank you again so much for joining us and and chatting about it all well thank you for having me and I love that this came about from us meeting in person like in a bookstore it's just beautiful full circle <laughs> You can find Courtney Mom on Instagram and Facebook at Courtney Mom and at her website, CourtneyMom.com. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram, The Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod, to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Finally, a huge thank you to Ford Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at fordradio.org.